One quick message before I start the show. You can find all the links and resources for this episode by visiting the show notes on rickyrichards.com. If you enjoy this episode, do consider subscribing on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you're feeling particularly generous, you can help me to grow the show by leaving a review on iTunes. For anyone who does subscribe, review or share, thank you. I appreciate it. Now let's get into the show. Welcome to Ricky Richards Represents, the show where I talk tips for success with leading figures of creativity and innovation. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the show. My guest today is Andy Nell. Andy is the founder of Jolt Diversity Programme, which every year takes 30 aspiring advertising creatives from a variety of diverse backgrounds and gets them into paid internships with a bunch of top creative agencies, as well as providing industry mentors and continuous training and development opportunities, uh, all with the intention to mix up the industry and provide more diversity. He's here today to talk open and honestly about diversity and some of the challenges the industry faces. Andy, welcome to the show. Thanks, lovely to be here. Um, I thought before we get into it that I'd start off just by saying this topic around diversity and equal opportunity is like a really complex topic and it's very rarely a one-size-fits-all. There's definitely a lot of uh, nuances to it. So today we're going to talk through a bunch of hot topics which could potentially polarise people, uh, but hopefully it will be informative nonetheless. And then as we go, we can discuss some of the ways not just to talk about this, also to implement some actual change. So without further ado, I'll, uh, I'll jump in. And maybe I thought we could start off, if I could pass the uh, baton to you here and just ask, what in your mind is the goal of uh, diversification and trying to get more people into the industry? And uh, what do you define as the problem that is currently inhibiting that, that change? Sure. Well, I would start by saying what it what it's not and what it shouldn't be is an HR exercise. It shouldn't be a box ticking exercise. It shouldn't be just something that we feel is the the moral right thing to do. I think it's I think that's a, a given and I think that underpins, but it certainly shouldn't be the primary reason. Um, you know, for us at Jolt, it's very much about diversity of thought and diversity of talent. It's about bringing into the industry people who have different life experience and who think differently and can therefore enhance ultimately the creative output both of the agency through their personal contributions but also through helping those in the industry to break out of that bubble by sharing creative development processes and, and ultimately sharing space and time with these people. So it's about enhancing the creative communications of the industry and ultimately giving access to people who can uh, can basically provide talent and provide a different way of approaching um, problem solving. So that for us is the absolute key to diversity. It's not for diversity's sake is actually to make our output as an industry better and to open our horizons and to basically allow everyone to think a little more broadly and have a a greater perspective in that regard. And then uh, I think that's a really good way of putting it, but then also in order for us, the reason why we're having to to make these changes is because there's the assumption that there's something there blocking people to coming into the industry. And there's lots of opinions as to who is responsible for that and what that is. Um, but what do you define as that as if it is even a problem or is it uh, 
what what are the what are the uh, bars to entry so to say sure i think there's there's a number of you're right it's complex complex there isn't just one easy solution this is actually a really really tough question multifaceted strategies to actually uh, make the changes um i think from the agency perspective um i think we talk a lot um about hiring people like ourselves and about you know using you can call it nepotism you can call it just you know your personal network but basically we tend to hire people from the from the group that we know um from people who have similar backgrounds to ourselves so we're naturally limiting um our our search process in that regard and i think equally um for those groups who don't necessarily access this industry or or not mainstream um co- you know commonly coming into the industry they won't necessarily know that much about the industry they won't think it's relevant to them so if you go and talk to um teenagers uh, in lower socioeconomic um areas of london who perhaps come from minority backgrounds you know they won't even think about advertising it won't even come into their into their consciousness as an option for when they leave school or perhaps if they do go to university you know when when they've graduated so um i think i think there's a real disconnect uh, between those groups who are underrepresented and and the industry in that regard from from both sides um i also think you know that it's it's actually very tough to identify how to reach out to these people so if you look at the the typical uh, hiring strategies so you know you might be using uh, you know utilizing industry publications be it campaign or drum or various online platforms you know you're only going to appeal to people who are self selectors who are already thinking about this industry so you're not going to access access um, those people and it's and it's not as if there's a a website which is sort of minority groups for advertising.co.uk or something you've got to go deeper you can't do this in a superficial manner which is obviously why Joel and kind of the core of our model and and kind of what makes us different is that we spent an awful lot of time identifying charities organizations um groups that represent and work with different communities and actually developing those relationships be it be it schools as i said be it charities etc um that that day in day out over many years have developed relationships and they know who are those people who have potential that might not think of this industry as a relevant uh, career option for themselves but they know that they given the right opportunity to actually apply would definitely add value so i'm just going to interrupt you there because sure. i think that you've really well you kind of split that off into two sections which i think was really uh or i i believe to be quite correct which is there's the kind of unintended biases of the individuals that are already in the industry and the fact that they're not necessarily going out of their way to find people then there's also this funnel coming in through the bottom and that maybe that itself isn't overly um it's not flowing with diversity itself so it makes the whole uh process quite um challenging to kind of get right in the first place yeah i think it is and i i i think again you you can't solve this in a superficial manner and i think that's why you have to spend time either companies or organizations like ourselves you know reaching out and developing relationships with with groups who who wouldn't necessarily con- consider the industry and just as another example so when we're talking about breaking down barriers in this regard you know if you if you think about for example the asian community and from a cultural perspective you know what is perceived as a successful career in to many people in the asian community it wouldn't be advertising it would be things like medicine 
and law and accountancy. So you're having to break down barriers there within the culture as well. It's not just identifying these people, it's actually presenting the industry in a way that they would see as you know, a viable way to, to develop themselves in their career, not just to the to, to those that are, that are applying, but also perhaps to their wider families and communities as well. So I think that's a really interesting area that a lot more work um, lead, needs to be done. Can, can I just jump on even a point early on that you said there, which is you said that there's certain groups that may self-select with regards to this because it's they're aware of it as a potential avenue. So from an employer perspective, I imagine that you would kind of want people that are self-selective and you, you're kind of in, uh, suggesting that people go out to find people from other groups. I think, I think it's about broadening our horizons. It's not about an either-or. It's not a zero-sum game of, you know, we should move away from people who are doing advertising degrees or, you know, mainstream cr- creative courses or, or you know, other, other degrees that... that that leads them to working or, or applying to our creative industry. I think it's it's fantastic we have we have those people, but we need to be more representative of society. We need to broaden um, the hiring process out to appeal to those who are who are severely underrepresented. Because as I said earlier at the beginning of the discussion, you know that would add value not just to them and their career opportunities, but to the industry as a whole. So it's not it's not moving us away. It's about how do we add. Yep, um, agreed. And we'll throw in the word diversity around, and I think it's probably good that we kind of ask what what is diversity. And um, there are lots of ways to break culture down into groups of individuals or uh, and people. And we tend to focus on things like skin colour, sex, or s- sexual orientation. But there's also there's like almost in, in infinite ways of kind of breaking people down. There's wealth, language, birthplace, height, age somatotype ability, interest, political or philosophical perspectives. Um, it, what is your metric for diversity and, mm. and what are the what's the industries and why do we give uh, preference to some forms of div- diversification over others? Absolutely. So I think for us, and again, we talked about diversity is, is being banded around, it's become like many other words, a, a, a you know, buzzword in the industry, and now we've started buzz, sort of developing the the buzz phrase diversity of thought. But actually, that in a way is a more relevant and appropriate term to use because it's not so much about skin color or, you know, um, you know, where they've lived, but it's about their experience. So, you know, if we if we look at it from a sort of a psychological point of view, in my background, my you know degree of psychology, and you know, I've always had a great passion for that. If you look at it from nature versus nurture point of view, roughly our makeup, who we are as, as individuals, comes 50% from, from nature, from you know, our DNA, our genetics, and 50% from our nurture, from our upbringing, from our environmental stimuli. So it's about people who've had different life experiences, who've had different influences that have informed their opinions, their thinking, the way that they are and the way they view the world. So I think that's an important way to to kind of distinguish sort of a bit deeper than, than sort of colour or, or, or location. But clearly, of course, your cultural background, your geographical background, your, your economic, socioeconomic status, all of these things will, will influence your environment and your upbringing and your life experience and so there is obviously relevance relevance there from jolt's perspective you know our starting point is we want to 
support those with the least access but the most talent. So we look at it from an accessibility point of view and that's that's where the word inclusivity comes in really. So in a way, you know, that's another in another way of looking at it really. It's it's about identifying people who are underrepresented who for whatever reason and you know it might be as we said it might be cultural reasons, might be economic reasons. That's a huge issue in in this industry, you know that you know if you can't afford to live in London and you're from Manchester or you know other regions, clearly that's going to impact on your ability to access um if, you know if you're from um you know from a from if you haven't been to university you know and, and you know so many uh, so many applications require a degree that again is going to impact impact on your accessibility so so we look at it in terms of you know which groups are un- underrepresented based on general society and particularly which groups of people within those those subsections um suffer the the most from having a lack of access and that's our starting point and then you have to focus in on on talent you can't do one without the other so i think that's a really interesting way of looking at it because there's the assumption that within the industry that it kind of it is just very very arbitrary um like metrics so let's i'm going to throw out a few fictitious situations so you might say there's a department of five people uh, four of them are white guys, and that would be deemed like an undivert. Or oh, let's let's make it bigger number. So uh, it's, there's a hundred people, and ninety percent of them are white guys. I want to go back to my five people because it helps with my analogy. But like, <laughs> so say, say there was a South African, a Swedish, a Russian, a Bolivian person. They would currently be perceived as just white guys. Am I am I right in saying that? But but and, but like let's like look at that a different way. Because you said about diversity of thought, so mm. there's plenty of people who are culturally gr- grow up in the same place, but maybe of different ethnicities mm-hmm. or have different sexual preferences, but be very, very similar in their interests. Absolutely, but of course, if they've got different cultural backgrounds, then you know their home life will be very different, and you know that they might have similar peer groups, but they'll have lots of other experiences which which sort of feed into to their you know pers- development of their personality and and their viewpoints and their the lens with which they see the world. So, you know, it is obviously complex, and it's 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 very subjective down to the individual, and you, you know, you, you can never um, stereotype too much. But I think, again, if we talk about inclusivity, we want to be as broad as possible, and you want absolutely to, to your example of sort of five five white people from different countries. Yes, they may share some similarities based on their race, but equally they'll they'll have a lot of differences in terms of their environmental stimuli and their their upbringing and their cultural development because they've come from different parts of the world and and that obviously has meant they've been exposed um to different things that that will then impact on on how they how they view the world and how they would ultimately in this context approach creative problem solving so i get um i guess that's the point i i i I was trying to make in a way I guess what I was asking really is, is diversity and the metrics, that, the metric system that we currently used, in your opinion, oversimplified? Or do you think it's it's helpful to have, like when you refer, when we refer to numbers, mm. when we say, let's just use the, the, the male-female divide and you say a, a company is 70% male-dominated mm. or whatever, mm. do you feel like they're helpful statistics or should we take them with a pinch of salt? I think 
you know, statistics are interesting. Um, and I think this lends itself a bit to the quota quota discussion, which hopefully we'll, we'll talk about as well. I think they're an interesting starting point. They can show certain indications in terms of, you know, lack, you know, underrepresentation, which need further evaluation. But I don't think we should be relying on numbers and on stats. You know, ultimately, you've got to look at individual difference as well. Absolutely. But I do believe you know, that that it's a starting point of which you then would then potentially inform your strategy for ensuring your workforce is, again, I'd say representative. I'm talking about representative society. And I think in our industry, the communications industry, where we're communicating with said society, um, I think that it is important, and we talked a little bit about empathy, we talk about consumer connection, it is important to have at least something resembling a representative group of people. But no, I don't think you can simplify it down to male and female or colour. I think these are just sort of starting points that you would then, you know, need to look much deeper into it. But, you know, from our point of view, Joel, you know, we're very broad in terms of the sectors, if you like, that we that we look to support. So, you know, gender, of course, being one, um, ethnic minority groups, people from different lower socioeconomic status, geographical diversity, supporting people with um, you know, sexual preference, diversity, LGBTQ+, um, through to disability, through to neurodiversity. We take a very, very broad approach um, because, again, we, do it from, we look at it from an, from an access point of view and as well as a representative of society point of view. I think you need both of those um, elements coming into this ultimately um, and then you look at it you know, from a talent point of view because it's always got to go, come back to talent. You can have the most representative um, cross-section uh, within your company, creative company, but if they're all useless, then you're, gonna, you're not going to produce good work and it doesn't really matter. It's a starting point, but you have to then have a strategy um, for ensuring your hiring policy and your retention policies and your workplace environment are set up so that you can ensure you bring the best people in and you don't move into positive discrimination. You know, it's, it's a hard balance because there is a pressure in the industry to, you know, meet certain criteria and start certain quotas but you've got to have a you know it's, it's like having a map with a with a destination we want to get over there we want to have that many people but then you have absolutely no plan of how to achieve it then you start making kind of poor decisions and then you start you know bringing in people who really aren't up to it and that doesn't help anyone the same doesn't help the individuals because they're not up to the job it will undermine um, you know what you're trying to achieve, and ultimately the results will be will not be what you're hoping to achieve. So it doesn't actually work. But stats and sort of objectives, sort of top line numbers are an, are absolutely fine as long as they're not arbitrary and as long as they're they're not just you must fulfil these at all costs. You have to have a really smart um, strategy for ensuring you can actually um, in, in bring the best people in. So, I mean, when we're getting to this level, we're talking about. We're making, I feel like we're making really, really positive steps at this point. Um, and so my next question is kind of about cultural progress and uh, how do you think, uh, as a culture of the world, we fare when it comes to diversity and inclusion? And um, I use this word, but take it as you will. Like, Do you think outrage is, is an appropriate reaction given the kind of historical trajectory towards an increasingly progressive society that we have? Um 
I would personally view the UK and other kind of Western countries as really quite... We've done well in the last 100 years, which is a bit of a blip in, in human history. Um, how do you think? Do you disagree? Well, I think on the macro level, on the, on the national level, you know, we have a, a relatively liberal and tolerant society and a relatively inclusive society, um, you know, and this is, a, I, I suppose... You know, a result of an imperialistic past that actually, you know, we we have, you know, not maybe for <laughs> the right reasons at the time, but we have made connections with many parts of the world, and obviously English is a right, widely spoken language, so that has resulted in many different people from different backgrounds coming to this country, and we do have a, you know, in general, an inclusive and tolerant um, society compared to many. However, it's certainly not perfect, but. But at the same time, I, I don't necessarily believe that the the national sort of sentiment or, you know, our slightly left-leaning um, uh, liberal society really means a lot when it gets down to the micro level, to the individual level and to the industry level. You know, it, it, there certainly isn't a reflection, you know, if you look at London, in the last census, I believe, you know, in terms of... Uh, um, you know, black Asian ethnic minorities was at forty percent in London. We're now probably at fifty percent or more. You know that that bears no resemblance to the five point four percent of people from black Asian ethnic minorities that work in our industry. So at some point, there's been a significant disconnect between that tolerant, inclusive, um, you know, overarching position that we try to maintain as a, as a nation, uh, and what our industry, the creative creative industry, actually manages uh, to reflect. So I think that's, uh, that's obviously a, still a huge challenge. And I suppose that brings you on to your second question about, you know, outrage and, you know, you know why are we not achieving, you know, or why are we not as representative as society, as society as a whole, and why are we not able? Why are we not able to do that? But I think outrage is such it's a really interesting, um, obviously emotion laden word. And you know, I'm I'm quite cynical, I suppose, of of the industry's um, response to to our lack of inclusion over the last few years. Um, there's been a lot of, um, as I like to call it, outrage from the stage, which is you know panel discussions talking about how terrible the situation is and how more must be done. And we hear a lot of sort of manifestos and proclamations, and a lot of column inches are, are written by by leaders. But you know what? If they were truly outraged, they wouldn't be talking about it so much. They'd be actually going out, and they would be not just spending time, but they would be investing heavily. You know to actually bring in hiring policies, retention policies. They'd be going out and engaging those parts of society, be it schools, be it colleges, be it uh, youth organisations, charities, etc., and actually doing something about it. So unfortunately, I do believe that there's been an awful lot of jumping on the bandwagon, an awful lot of, um, I suppose... You know, self-promotion to a certain extent, talking about this issue and 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 saying how terrible it is and how things need to change, but really, you know, that's a given. You know, we we've been talking like that for a couple of years now, if not longer. It's fairly obvious that things need to change, and so outrage really needs to be demonstrated through action. You know, you 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 didn't have the feminist movement outraged at gender inequality and just sort of sat, you know 
in their houses, you know, waiting for something to happen, they took action, they took extreme action. I'm not certainly not suggesting we take, you know, crazy action, but you can't make change without demonstrating yourselves what happens when you make that change. And that means actually, fundamentally, hiring people, actually. Can I ask two questions there? The first is, so you mentioned the feminist movement, and it seemed to me that that was kind of propagated by the group itself. Like, women stood up and said, we want this. And then you've also said leaders should go out and and make these initiatives and and put in the hard yards necessary to to kind of make diversity real where do you think the responsibility lies in a way with like who 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 is it the big organizations like dnad is it the agencies themselves is it the individual is it charity um you know well i would like to see a cross a cross group initiative um, what I what I find hard to accept is when you have IPA targets, twenty twenty targets, which are fantastic. You know, we need to have X number of uh, of women in leadership positions, X number of new starters, and et cetera, et cetera, from different backgrounds, without then actually saying, okay, you know, members of our organisation, let's get together, let's develop a strategy, let's each invest a percentage of our profit into making this a reality. That's what you actually need to do. You have to actually put your hand in your pocket, put your money where your mouth is as a business, as a, as a, as a group of business, as an industry. And for me, certainly, you know, the members organisations and DNAD as well, you know, they can all be there to be supported. But ultimately, it's down to the companies because they're the ones that have to hire people and they're the ones that actually have to retain those people and ensure that their workplace is an appropriate environment for those people to, to be comfortable and to be able to succeed in. Okay. It's hard for the organisations, you know, the minority groups or whatever the, the underrepresented groups would be, um, to, to be active, if you like, or overly active, because, number one, they don't have any power. They don't have decision-making power. And secondly, you know, they may not, as I said early on, think about the industry as a relevant industry for them. We have to do a bit of a makeover job to this industry. Right. That's a really important part of this as well. You know, years ago, in the 80s and 90s, advertising was a sexy, attractive industry. It was, it was an industry that people thought of, I want to work in advertising, plus the fact people didn't need to have degrees in those days to work in advertising. You know, it's not the same anymore. It, it's not a go-to industry. You know, it's not the place you think We're of. certainly not offering up shares like the tech industry. Uh, the other thing I wanted to ask there was, because you mentioned earlier uh, you had the exact figures, like a kind of 40%... Uh, representation of the of London, for example, being the people within a certain sure. So in the last but, census, you know, forty percent of London was black Asian minority, and now obviously, you know, we've continued to, um, you know, we have you know healthy immigration into the into the capital, and I would imagine that's more like fifty percent now. And and then there's five percent in industry, five point four percent in the creative industry, which has gone down one percent since last year. So it's dropping, it's declining as right. an industry. So then. Where does that disparity lie? Is it is it the uh, advertising agencies tip or creative industries in general typically look for people with degrees, and not enough people are going into degrees from that background? You know, it's really interesting. I think I think there's a, a few issues here. Um, one is, as we talked about earlier, you know, there might be cultural barriers. 
to the creative industry. Um, another maybe you know there there is a um, a correlation. You know there is a high number of people from minority backgrounds living in lower socioeconomic areas and, and and parts of London and outside London. And so I think you know money and kind of the need to get through a degree and then potentially do work unpaid or, or ad hoc work experience and internships. It's a costly endeavour to get into the industry. So there's ma- a massive prohibitive factor around um, around finance. But, you know, even we work with colleges as well, which is, re- you know, it's really interesting to hear from them the challenges they have because they've told us that what's happening um, and it's actually a generally understood thing, to be to be honest. I don't have the stats in front of me, but certainly within the creative sector, we're seeing it as well. During degrees, you have a higher proportion of people from BAME backgrounds who do not finish their degrees. So they're perhaps getting in, doing creative degrees, advertising degrees, but they're not completing them. And that's super interesting. And then even if they do finish their degrees and then they go out and, and they're trying to get those those um, jobs or they get their first job and they're working the long, hard hours in the industry, where are the role models? You know, you know, Adam and Eve was agency of the year at Cannes this year. Okay, fantastic agency, brilliant people. Double page spread in campaign. 11 people standing in a row. Eight of the 11 were men. There was no one of colour in that picture. Now, if you look at that and you're a person of colour, of a minority background, you know, even, even a, a woman who's aspiring to make it to the top, you look at that and you don't feel inspired. You don't feel you've actually got a role model to say, right, I want to be like that person. So there's a huge issue around role modelling. But there's not a lot you can do about role models because there there is who there is in the industry. So you've got to still start at the grassroots. You yeah, can't artificially that, inseminate. Because it's it's not that group of people's fault per se, is it? No, what, no. Like they, they can instill change by actively seeking somebody to kind of mix that up. But sure. I think it's the it's the whole thing as well about when there's so many pieces to the to the machine that no one person feels responsible for it, if that makes sense. And that's why it almost helps to have like a person within an organization which is dedicated to making this to making this initiative or this change happen. Yeah, and I think that's actually to be fair to the industry is happening a lot more now. So we're seeing both within holding groups and within individual agencies, we're seeing heads of DNI, diversity and inclusion, coming in now. And, you know, we're seeing that more and more. We're seeing also within companies, we're seeing diversity and inclusion committees and groups. And so there, there is, you know, organised behaviour. There is There are coming together of people, which will obviously then lead itself, you would expect, to plans, strategies, and then implementation. Um, I just very much hope that they get the investment that they need because you can't throw training budget. You will not solve this by giving everyone bias training. You need to hire people from different backgrounds. So you must, and you have to do it at the grassroots because we don't have them in the industry already. So logically, you need to hire interns and juniors once you've been able to find them and once you've been able to select them in a fair and appropriate manner then you actually have to invest in them. Okay, so our next question is around talent and, and diversity. And this, again, is like a really contentious point because the whole idea is is that the more diverse your organisation is, the more you're going to get ideas from various different viewpoints and that is ultimately what's going to lead to your business being more uh, successful. So on a 
case-by-case basis, you may find somebody from a particular group that's already overrepresented that you may say is more talented, for example, on, on a this is on a case-by-case basis. But the that's in the sh- that's a short-term perspective. I.e., let's take somebody that we deem to be more uh, uh, talented in the short term and not address the long-term issue of diversification versus actively partaking in diversification and then the long-term upside being um, that your business will be more successful because of that, those viewpoints. So I've tried to articulate this because um, McKinsey did a study that showed that companies that have a diverse work- workforce performed on average 35% better than businesses lacking in diversity. Um, so there's no question there that can diversity drive business results. But do you think the best way to implement that change uh, is company quotas or does that discriminate away from individual merit? And uh, also, or should we just be looking for diverse talent that is exceptionally talented, even though they might be in uh, smaller numbers at the start? So Sorry, I'm not... I threw a lot at you there. That's <laughs> fine. I'm not a huge fan of quotas. Uh, I think I sort of touched on it earlier. I think it's a fine and okay starting point. It's like, you know, in the next five years, we want to have you know, 50% male, 50% female leadership positions or, you know, with uh, as an average across all levels within within the company. I think it's a fine um, starting point, but you, you can't fall into the trap of starting to hire on the basis of gender. You must always ensure you're hiring the best person for the job. It doesn't obviously it's not just gender, it's any, you know, any form of inclusivity you want you want to mention. So therefore you must ensure that you have hiring strategies that are inclusive. And also, you know, you must then consider the individual differences between those groups. So take for example someone with autism someone who has you know who's been diagnosed autistic they will think differently and they will act and perform differently in the workplace to someone who is not autistic now of course it's complex there's a continuum and, and every individual person is different but the bottom line is you can't just have the the same recruitment process and treat everyone in that recruitment process differently uh, the same sorry because clearly they may be deemed, as far as that process is concerned, to underperform and not get the job. So, you know, you want to have quotas, but you have to look then, OK, how do we achieve this in a way where we can ensure we're tapping the most talented people? We're not discriminating, but we're being inclusive, but we're understanding the differences. And of course, you know, it is, again, it's not just about that recruitment process. You have to also accept if you're looking at people who haven't, done advertising degrees they haven't been to university non-graduates you know from you've chosen a different path you know they're not going to be polished they're not going to have had that experience and therefore it's not fair and reasonable to expect them to apply in the same way so you as someone who's gone through that degree process so again you have to have a, a recruitment process and that that actually may be different you might want to have one which is for non-graduates which 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 takes them on a different initial path so you, you know you've got to look at it from what's our plan to achieve this quota otherwise otherwise it becomes a real kind of issue around positive discrimination just to fill our quota you know we see it an awful lot you know when we go into companies and, and, and they talk to us about look we're really looking to get a leadership person who comes from this 
background or, or has that, you know, from that particular group of people because we think it's important, we want to make a statement, we want this to be part of our leadership group. And they say, but the problem is we're finding that the people that are interviewing, they're just not the best person for the job. And so what do we do in that situation? Now, obviously, what they need to do is, is, is pick the best person for the job in the short term. But in the medium term, they need to be part of developing solutions to ensure the training development and the, you know, even at the grassroots level, there is a way and a strategy for bringing people in from different backgrounds who might think differently and have a different starting point, but you can develop them within the industry and support them in a way that they can ultimately be the best person for that job. So that's how I think. That's what I think about um, quotas. I, I, I can. There's a few. There's a few different things I want to unpack there. One of them is this. I think people. You, you mentioned say the fifty-fifty initiative, and that's like a kind of very very black and white. Uh, way of approaching it and the analogy i try and use there is and tell me if you think this is a weird rubbish one but if you were to get a coin which you would assume is a 50 50 split and were to flick it 10 times the likelihood that it would be 50 50 is quite unusual um despite the fact that there's equal chance supposedly i mean there's the factor of your thumb and all the other things around it but the the complexity of hiring people is infinitely more complicated than the flip of a coin, which already doesn't come out how you would anticipate it. Um, so to me, when you have disparities in numbers, it, that seems to me to be like a perfectly normal thing. It would be crazy if everybody, if everything was even all the time. Yes, that is a good point from a probability point of view. However, you need to ensure that, and we'll, we'll talk about gender because gender at a leadership, it's not, I don't consider it as a major challenge at grassroots level in, in, in our particular sectors. There is still disparity, um, but it's not as pronounced, anywhere near as pronounced, obviously, at leadership level. So at leadership level, it's a really, it's a kind of as, you know, it's, it's a really good one to focus on. So, you know, Yes, I think that you need to be approaching, you need to have a strategy to be able to approach a 50-50 gender split. But just saying that and saying, okay, well, then let's just hire in the people or let's just promote internally is not going to solve that. You have to actually obviously investigate and research why that is the case. And there's, it's obviously complex and there's, there's no one solution. But one, certainly one of the reasons for that is the inflexibility in the industry in terms of working practice. So for women who've chosen to have children who are mothers, be they in their 20s, 30s, 40s, but let's say typically perhaps between the ages of 35 and 45 these days, I haven't got the stats in front of me in terms of you know average age of, uh, of having your first child, but they tend to be more at the senior end of the market. They've been in the industry 10, 15 plus years. Okay, now for them having a child, they may choose... Obviously, it's individual. They may choose they want to come back to work or on a part-time basis. Now, most companies are not geared up for mothers returning on a flexible or a, or fathers, for that matter. You know, they do don't have those kind of paternity flexible working environments, and that therefore leaves mothers and sometimes fathers with the choice. Do I return or do I return to work on the basis that they wish me to? Or do I, 
you know, prioritise my child. And that isn't really a reasonable decision to put people in the position to have to make. You shouldn't have to choose your career over your family. And because of that, and that's, again, only one of many reasons, but I do believe it's quite a major reason, there is a huge brain drain, particularly on the female side, um, that we have a huge loss in this industry. So for those companies, and there are certainly some who are doing this now, that have returnship programmes, that are looking into how... And we have these conversations as well, certainly with agencies, about you know how can you practically structure a job share or flexible working or remote working, how do you basically become more progressive and allow people who have such huge talent not to have to be put in a position where they have to choose family versus career and actually benefit? And I think even if if they could work on that and say, you know, let's actually make this happen. Let's do a test. Let's just, let's do a trial as some companies are now doing because it only takes a few. Once you have a few are doing it and they're demonstrating it can be successful, you will find that those numbers at a scene level will certainly be um, increasing. Not only will you have a better split at a senior level, your retention figures will be much, much better. In the, in the creative industry, the average length of time someone spends in one job, and this has been the case for many, many years, is 18 months. But if you're a progressive company that is providing a workplace environment and a way of working which is supporting the personal and lifestyle and life life choices of an individual, you know, they will stay with you. They will be loyal and they will basically work, you know, so damn hard for that company. So it's really part of a lot a long term plan of success that they should be looking in this way. So I uh yeah, I mean that's a great point you just made. I'm trying to I'm trying to think about so say from a you have you always have to revert back to like the incentives for for employers oftentimes the way that this is often is people at the very very height of any industry tend to be outliers of to some degree and companies generally want those people that are extremities um in a with business being so competitive do you think that um, super progressive initiatives like this uh, will take hold, or do you think, like, say, advertising, which is historically, and that, this is the whole point, is that it's historically been this way, mm-hmm. um, a kind of dog eat dog, but it's also an industry where a client can disappear and you have to sack off half your workforce. So, I mean, there's a massive incent- imperative for businesses to be successful and for them to for everyone to be on top of their game, for people to work Saturdays and and all the stuff which sure. goes on regularly. Um, sure. I mean, certainly from our perspective, you know, this kind of more progressive and, and inclusive um, you know, work, workplace uh, structure will underpin their commercial success. I mean, I don't think it, it detracts from that. I talked earlier, you know, from a, just from a, purely from a talent drain point of view, you know, having access to a wider pool of the best people because you've worked out how to actually accommodate, accommodate them in a, in a in a way and you know, is going to obviously benefit you commercially. You know, also I think as you said, there is a need anyway for companies to be quite adaptive, just based on on the way that the the world works now and, 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 the, and the sort of commercial presses, pressures that that, um, that that clients will put them under. So, you know, we're asking them just to be adaptive in a different way. And, you know, it, it may not be perfect and it may not work every time, but 
if you look at it purely on a talent basis, you're going to just have such a more a wider pool of highly talented senior people who can bring different things and add different value to your business and let alone the commercial imperative because I think it's really important and hopefully we'll talk later about you know why actually diversity and having an inclusive workforce will ensure long-term commercial success for a business rather than be a drain and a drag on it because actually clients are expecting that from their from their suppliers from their creative suppliers that it's, it's not something that agencies are doing purely for benevolent reasons they're doing it because it's a commercial imperative to do it now so hopefully we'll talk about that a bit I just uh, my next question I'll try and grease over fairly quickly but I was interested to get your point on it and it's um, we briefly touched on earlier about um, outrage to some degree and there's the whole discussion around kind of group identity versus individualism and uh, the the analogy I like to use with this is uh, f- like football teams. So imagine you've got Manchester United and Liverpool and you've got most people are moderate, most people aren't bothered about if they bump into a person from the opposing team <coughs> after the game. But then there's a group of people that want to, like I'm a vehement Manchester United fan and I want to kill or not kill, but I, I hate the Liverpudlian uh, supporters. And vice versa, Liverpudlian supporters hate the Manchester United supporters. And if they saw each other outside the game, they might have a fisty cuffs. But then, once a year, England play. And these these two people that would otherwise be really aggressive towards one another might be sat right next to each other in a seat. And because there's a shared goal, which is England in this context, which is still another tribalist thing, so try and ignore that from the analogy. But mm-hmm. the point I'm trying to get to is the the idea of a shared goal. And sometimes I think that this debate is often discussed as like an us versus them scenario. And I don't think, not only do I not think that that necessarily aids in us achieving what we're trying to achieve, it also draws more attention to this idea of group identity and difference among people when... I think the aspiration is for everybody to feel uh, harmonious among one another. Do you see what I'm trying to say? Yeah, I think I do. <laughs> to an extent, I think, you know, it's it's interesting because, you know, you, you, you have to segment society, you have to identify groups of people in one way or another, but you're absolutely right. You can't... That's, that's just almost... Uh, a top line way of identifying, um, you know, as we said earlier, groups that are perhaps underrepresented, and then you coin a phrase, be it "bame" or you know, whatever, to to, to identify and 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 group those people under a certain label. So you know, the question is: is labelling beneficial? I think if you just left it at that, then absolutely it wouldn't be. But you know, just to be able to identify groups is important. But ultimately, beyond that, you're absolutely right. You, we have to focus then. On the individuals, and in a way, it's, it's in a way, it's just sort of a way of being able to find people, if you like, people who are sort of in, in a different environment or from a different background. But once once you've identified, you know, said said group, then you must be must be focusing in on the individual because uh, you know, ultimately, we hire individuals. We don't hire groups. We might hire a creative team if it's if, it, if it's in the creative department. But you know, you you have to then, um, you know, and I, I think the question around you know, do we have an ultimate aspiration of um, of a non-biased society, I, I think it's I think it's impossible. 
you know, to, to be non-biased. I think what, what we can achieve is to be aware of our biases um, and, and to kind of ensure that, that whilst we're aware of them and, and they may exist, um, be they unconscious or conscious, but, you know, we can, you know, sort of factor that in when we're trying to sort of take a, you know, a more inclusive approach to ensure that that doesn't, um, you know, ultimately uh, undermine our ability to, to bring in people from different different groups. But you're absolutely right. You know, ultimately we're hiring individuals and you have you have to work in, I suppose, a funnel a funnel way from 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 society to, to subsection group, you know, down to individual. And at that point is when you're actually identifying those people that we would certainly, you know, deem to be the most uh, able and, and talented for a particular um, role and actually then then strengthen the creative company and, and do the, do themselves justice in that in that particular position. Um, I just we touched on group and so the idea of you being uh, whatever kind of sub subgroup you belong to, but there's this idea of working for your group. And uh, I wanted to talk about very very briefly the Joe Wallace interview. She she said this lovely thing where she said. Right, the best creatives are, uh, create, uh, are great creatives because they have empathy. They have the capacity to fill somebody else's shoes. And yet, um, well, that was a power phrase. It wasn't the exact words, but something along those lines. Uh, and yet, uh, like on occasion, I've heard two sides of this argument because I've heard uh, a female creative, for example, say that they disliked being placed on brands specifically for women. But then I've also heard another female creative say, why are men producing ads for women? Um, it's so kind of implying, you know, should you be doing that? Should we be doing this? And I, you know, I like to think of, am I the best person to advertise tampons? Probably not. Um, but then should other people produce ads for stuff, which is maybe stereotypically masculine? I, I would say yes. Um, but it's hard to answer that question. I was wondering what your thoughts are. So, I mean, of course I agree with Joe that, that having empathy you know, is absolutely essential to great creative output, you know, and, and sometimes you get helped to a, to a greater or lesser degree by having a really fantastic, insightful brief to work from um, and you've got time to do your research and, 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 and to immerse yourself in that subject matter and, you know, that obviously would all underpin... Um, your ability to to then express that empathy and actually come up with something appropriate for that audience. Um, if we talk about male female, it's a really interesting question within the within the creative department. I've known, you know, a number of men who've produced some of the most awarded creative um, work directed at women. You know, be it for tampons, be it for um, beauty products. So you know, clearly, you know, they have an ability. To, to do that and equally certainly women have an ability to to work on non uh, female oriented um, products I think you know it's a shame when you when men or women of course more women really are pigeonholed and and you know are put onto feminine or female oriented products and to and services to work on and, and limited to that I should say more importantly because clearly they are first and foremost a creative 
And the whole purpose of being a creative is really to be able to work across a, a variety of brands and products and services, some for you that, are, that you are part of that target audience and some that you are not. You know, if we look at inclusivity, why, why do we think it's important to have people who are representative of society? Because we want their personal insights, we want their personal take. But it isn't the be-all and the end-all, but it adds adds an element to the creative development process. So having someone who can talk firsthand, you know, about something and their personal experience of it is a very persuasive um, and, and, and a very insightful, obviously, element to a creative development process. But it isn't the starting and the end point. It is just an element which should go into, you know, being a, being a good creative. If you've got you know, a great brief, if you've got, you know, access to research and focus groups and just if you can immerse yourself into a into a product into a into a service and you have that capacity as joe talked about to empathize then with that group that's by far the most important thing and that comes down to your personal ability and capacity and empathy certainly would be part of what it what it means to be a very good creative um I've got this question regarding uh, the incentives of leadership and it kind of follows on from that last question. Uh, I discovered this chap and he's called, um, I apologise if I completely um, bastardise his name, but it's, I think it's Deb Debrashi Pan, Pandit. He's uh, the multicultural business director at Sky. And I found this guy particularly interesting because he basically in a way kind of used his background as a as a bargaining tool and used business incentive as his means of getting in so oftentimes I, I look at this as um I mean you know that I work with young creatives a lot of the time and one thing that I try and stress a lot of the time is that there's a there's a business in uh transaction that goes on when a company employs you if that whatever their salary is that they're paying you they're paying you that much on the assumption that they that your efforts are going to have a return for them and so he was kind of this uh, chap he he went in and he said you're not talking to a large cross section of your industry um or the people that you should be targeting uh, you're completely alienating them bring me in uh, I'll I'll kind of make that change for you and I wondered whether uh, is is it's not something we focus on at all. But could we potentially try and encourage people from diverse backgrounds to to, to start looking at it more from this perspective that that they're that they have a lot of value to add and that maybe they can frame it instead of it being I want a job because that's in my best interests. Um, I would like a job because it's in your best interest and kind of framing it around that. Absolutely. I mean, I believe it's the, the primary motivator, you know, rightly or wrongly, for companies to invest in, in a more inclusive workforce because there is a commercial value to that. And you've touched on basically consumer connection, that if we don't have a representative um, company, a creative department and all, all departments really how are we expected to be as effective as and insightful as possible talking to parts of society that we directly do not have a connection with, a consumer connection to? And so, you know, that's very much one of the reasons why, you know, companies, creative companies are being asked by their clients 
in pitches, in RFIs, you know, for a demonstration of what their strategy and their implementation of that strategy is and how representative their workforce is of inclusive and diverse people and group of people you know so it's no longer just a good and important thing to do for the, for those individuals it's actually part of the long-term sustainability of or even medium to long-term sustainability of the creative company because when you've got companies like hewlett-packard you know last year uh, in the states who who sent an open letter to all of their creative creative suppliers in fact all of their suppliers not just creative all of their suppliers saying you need to deliver deliver to us in the next 90 days what your strategy, what your implementation policy is, and how representative your workforce is of an inclusive um, society, you know. And if they don't deliver against that, clearly it's going to have consequences. And we see it more and more now with creative agencies that in RFIs, in pitches, you know, they're being asked to demonstrate how inclusive they are. So if they want to be competitive, if they want to be commercially successful, this is absolutely imperative that they invest now so that they can continue to be a successful business moving forward. I think it's not even on the just the agency side. It was interesting. One of the things that um, this chap was saying was that basically within ethnic minorities that they tend to do the best of, uh, especially if they come from a different background, that the way that they consume media is that they'll consume the best of uh, British TV, and then they'll they'll watch the best of uh, TV from say their their home country or whatever, or um, and the kind of from a media strategy perspective and a... absolutely, I think that is so true. It, you know, it's all about media now, isn't it? If you think about how targeted we can be, of course, you know, it's social media, it's Facebook, whatever. You know, what's the value in in being able to target micro communities? if you don't have a capacity to effectively communicate with them. So you're right, it, you know, in the current, in, in, the, in the modern age of, of um, highly targeted communication, we need to be able to reflect these societies. There aren't just three or four channels on TV anymore and, and a sweeping mass communication approach is going to do the trick. You've got to be able to talk to these communities and subsections of communities. And to be able to do that, absolutely, you need to be able to legitimately have a consumer connection um i'm gonna kind of blitz through these last few a little bit because i think we're, we're running quite uh, quite a lot on time but i wanted to talk about the funnel into the industry and then maybe if we can tie into that uh the the lenses and how we perceive the world and this is quite a maybe a deep one i guess but um I often think that the way you kind of look at the world is in some part reflected uh, in in the way that you uh, navigate it, I guess. Um, and going back to the first question with regards to the funnel of the industry, I was quite taken back the other day when I went to DNAD and I was under the assumption that... Uh, it would that, that would be, obviously, uh, it should be a melting pot of diversity and actually it's not and so while there's a lot of stress being put on companies to have a diverse workforce the pool in which they're going to isn't and then I asked myself another question which I thought was maybe an interesting uh step like look at it is if all of these people in this room were gone and I was just objectively looking at the work would I be able to tell what 
came from somebody from a diverse background purely by the compl- like the difference in their ideas and i fa- i thought there was maybe one or two people that stood out as like i would know that this wasn't from a just a standard british person mm-hmm. but then interestingly there was in both years there was people that stood out to me as just wildly different people and that those people uh like had people coming to them because they were so different mm. and and so yeah i just think it's an interesting question not only of the the individual and are they a diverse person but is their output influenced by everything that they see or is it influenced by something completely different um i guess it depends on the actual subject matter they're working on and how much personal um experience that they would bring and how much personal insight they would bring that would dif- be differentiated to those p- other people who are from you know all other backgrounds so if it's something that that is quite niche and you know personally they can add value and, and add a and add a different perspective on then i guess they would perhaps differentiate in those circumstances but if it's if it's something which which you know they wouldn't differentiate against you know versus other groups then then you might they might not stand out but you know so but i I suppose it's it isn't necessarily about them always producing something different it's about maybe that's the starting point and you know it, it might lend itself and there might be some nuances within a creative creative solution it might not be kind of something which ultimately leads them down an entirely different different um uh, direction it is very much subject to the um to the specifics of the brief and then obviously to the individual as we said before we talk about sub subsections of society but of course within that you know that every, everyone everyone is different so you're not expected to say oh well this person must be bame this person's a female this person I, I think you know those are interesting kind of you know parts of themselves which 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 may to a greater or lesser degree um influence whatever creative output they come up with i think it would be a fascinating that's almost like one of these social campaign videos isn't it you know where it'd be interesting to get 100 creatives in the room give them the same brief and see if people could identify people that can repeat the test over and you've got to make it scientific in some respect and like you say it completely comes down to the brief and if that has any relationship to well i mean so a- it's such a complex it's it's almost impossible to maybe. yeah i i think it's i think it's i i probably i personally think it's relatively unlikely to however it does depend on the subject matter and so i'll give you an anecdotal example based on our 2017 um uh, a jolt recruitment process if you like so though so the application process for those people wanting to come on to our scheme now you know how we source people is through our, our 16 diversity partners charities organizations that represent different groups and work with different communities now what happens is we send a brief out to all interested parties from those communities via our partners they will then and, and that and that's a creative brief they have to come up with a creative solution against they will then submit those or they submitted those creative answers to us those answers were then judged blindly by a pool of industry senior creative people and that brief that particular brief was on homelessness um and you know those the idea was you know the the brief was how to 
help homeless people help themselves in in an innovative way. So you could argue that that particular creative that group of creative submissions was from lots of different types of people. Now, when those creative responses um, were reviewed. You, you certainly couldn't have looked at that, and we didn't look at that, and none of the judges did, and say, oh, well, this person's clearly from that background, that comes... It didn't come through at all. It was quite interesting that actually one of the applicants subsequently who who, who was shortlisted and got through to the programme, who came up with a great response, had, at, for a period of time, been homeless. And, but it's quite interesting, you know. We didn't know that at the time. But, you know, you could argue that there's obviously, you know, direct insight there, and that, that, that person had probably spent quite a lot of time thinking about how to get off the streets, actually. So, you know, from that point of view, you can think if you spent a lot of time on a subject matter, you're probably actually going to... Um, that's going to add some value to your creative development process. But from that sort of anecdotal and sort of... That was only 70-odd um, um, you know, creative pieces we were reviewing there. You certainly couldn't... You, you wouldn't have identified, um, you know, a, a gender or a BAME or a you know person with disability over some who didn't sort of share those same characteristics so I think on that level I think it's un- unlikely but again you know for that particular brief there was a particular person who had a particular experience which lent itself to a very very good response so from that point of view you could say you know depend subject to the brief brief yeah. dependent um, I want to skip to the, this question which uh, this has been a, a, a recent news story and it was uh, a DNAD student was told that they'd never work in the creative industry. And uh, do you think it's beneficial for us to create a culture where people get uh, upset or angry by words, or should we be reverting back to the old stick and stones will break my bones, but uh, words will never hurt me approach? So I think that criticism is an essential part of growth and development. However, I believe criticism needs to be constructive. So, you know, in this particular case, we don't know what this individual that that gave this criticism was responding to. If they were looking at their creative work and saying, you'll never work in the industry, then I think it's lazy and I think it's completely unhelpful and, you know, it's just there's no place for that. Um, however, if they were talking to someone who was if it was a behavioural feedback, if that person was, you know, not listening to them, was, was arrogant, was 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 basically behaving very poorly, um, I, I think you could understand why they might say in the context of, you know, that kind of behaviour, there's no place for that in the industry. So I think it's quite hard in the case of that particular example, but it certainly sounds top line like like it was unhelpful and, and you know, to, to, to speak to someone like that is, is certainly not going to not going to give them the chance that they may they may deserve to prove to prove that person wrong and clearly if you're a you know if you're a, a recent or an undergraduate you know you're you're not <laughs> you know you're not the 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 ready made article you know so i think i think from that point of view i think it yeah it, it's not particularly helpful i think in general as i said you know criticism is important i think one of the things that frustrates me is when you know certain individuals seem to get offended on behalf of others which is which is just odd, you know that that, that perhaps it's not something that personally um, impacts them, but they're getting upset for someone else who may themselves not actually be upset. Um, I, I think we can, yes, I think we are, are, we can often the, the, the reason get the reason outraged. I included it. Sorry to interrupt. Sure, is because I I pers- like I feel like it's sh- like I feel if I told you, Andy, you're shit at your job, you would go. I don't give a shit, Rick. What you think? I'm gonna tomorrow. I'm gonna go and I'm gonna do it, and I'm gonna be. Uh, I'm gonna. I'll prove you wrong or whatever. 
it, so there's a few different ways of looking at this, as you've rightly pointed out, that maybe the creative wasn't very good and this and whilst it was articulated extremely badly and like you say, there's no place for it, maybe they needed something to because it is a competitive industry still, and like you say, you're always reverting back to talent. So um, we put students through lots of fees in order to get into the industry, and oftentimes very few people give people honest feedback and tell them what they need, like what what really needs to be said. On the other side, as an individual, if you really believe in something, words are just words, really. Like you, you it's up to you as to how you want to interpret them. It may knock your confidence, but um, you've kind of just got to go for it. And I, I always, another thing that I always try and instill in people when I have uh, discussions with students is do things for yourself. Um, don't just kind of rely on, expect other people to, to deliver. So I'll just reflect on a few of my own experiences. I know that, you know, I've, whatever my experiences are is, uh, anecdotal but I worked at a company and I was promised a pay rise that they didn't give me so the next day I handed in my notice and left um, I was at a company where I was trying to get some really good work out I was constantly being put on crap clients and I wanted to produce videos and I was producing banner ads and crap like that so I left work and I, me and a friend started producing low budget music videos and um and I tried to get an idea through for to Coke and I couldn't do it. So I sent it to Graham Fink at Ogilvy. It didn't even work for them. And he got it like he thought it was a good idea. So he got it made. And this isn't for me to say, look how great I am. What I'm trying to say is, is in all of these situations, I could have stopped or I could have. And I feel like it, young people need to have a, a bit of a backbone and say, do you know what, if I really want this, I'm going to f- go for it. I think that's a fantastic point. You're absolutely right. So it's kind of being aware of the bigger picture and you're you're having a big reason why, yeah. So anyone pretty much that's been successful in anything ever had to deal and process rejection. And the key question is not, you know, why is why is this person rejecting me is but you know, what can I do with this? You know, what can I learn from this? You know, so constructive criticism always makes that answer easier. But ultimately, it's really, really important, as you said, to consider, you know, what's the big picture here? What is your purpose? And, you know, this is something that we really look to instill as well so, you know, in the people, in, in the young, often young people, but junior people that we work with. And I think absolutely you have to be able to deal with rejection. That rejection will come in different ways, shapes and forms. And you're not doing it for that individual who's given you that that piece of criticism or that, that pushback. You're doing it for yourself. And if you keep focus on the bigger picture and, you know, ultimately why you're wanting to achieve what you're trying to achieve, you will move on and it will make you stronger. I think ultimately that's the other thing, isn't it? It's not just kind of, oh, I will survive. It's okay. Yep, fine, whatever. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep going. Okay, I'll try and learn what I can from them if they've said something what they don't like. Okay, maybe I can use that. Maybe I can flip it around. Maybe I can add something, change it. Fine, great. But it will thicken your skin. It will keep you going. You know, Having said all of that, you know, there are clearly people who, you know, are emotional, are vulnerable, and certainly people who, if the feedback is from someone they admire, they highly respect, if it's damning and definitive, 
then that will have an impact on them. So I think it does depend also who's giving the feedback and the context of the feedback and all those other things. But you're you're so right when when you say it's you know why why are you looking to achieve what you're doing because it is going to be hard. The road is going to be rocky. You yeah. are going to get lots of rejection, be it from an individual, be it from an agency, be it from a client. You've got to deal with that and you've got to be able to move forward. Uh, I, w- I want to just very, very quickly jump in on a point you made there that there are some people that are maybe a bit emotional or vulnerable. And again, just in the interest of like being true, I feel like that's where there are going to be some people who are just cold, hard killers basically that go into the industry and nothing's going to stop them and they're a bulldozer and they are the people unfortunately if you think this is bad or good that end up oftentimes in in high power positions because they just they're persistent and they're not prepared to take no for an answer and all the rest of it and that's where oftentimes you end up with disparities between people that are maybe less inclined to be like that Absolutely, I think. But I think, you know, you need people with sensitivity, with vulnerability, because that isn't necessarily a weakness. You know, you know, there's a there is a significant correlation I would suggest between, you know, Joe Wallace's empathy and sensitivity, and you know, to be someone who is open and can feel what others feel. You know, that type of person can also be the person who does react more so when they get damning criticism from someone very senior to them that they highly respect so you know you do need different personalities so i but i but i think if you've got that kind of that burning desire that you know it's okay to be upset because it's not going to mean you're going to stop it just means you're going to actually probably come back from that and be stronger as a result of that you know it's how you process that rejection and, and you know be upset be disappointed you know go home and cry if that's what it takes it takes but then come back the next day and go right sod you I'm going to show you I'm going to show everyone I am going to make it and when I make it I'm going to send you an email very polite one and say hey mate you know I'm now creative or whatever the role is in this industry and you so you need to have that end goal in mind all the time but it's okay to be vulnerable it's okay to be sensitive it's okay to be upset actually but as long as you can use that to, to empower and strengthen yourself that's really really important you've got to process it um so I think it's. I think we should uh, kind of come to a close relatively soon. So before I ask for your information, how people can get hold of you, um, and how people can find out more about Joel, <clears throat> I thought that maybe we could close out the episode just by both of us giving uh, a few cliff notes on a few things we would suggest people to do to work towards this future that we want to create. And um, we can start with you. Yeah, absolutely. So I would say from the creative company's perspective... I think you have to accept there's no quick fixes. You you can't just send your team on a on a training program and and that's going to solve solve the the lack of inclusivity in the industry. Um you really need to start um at the top of the organization. So it's got it's got to be a real buy-in at a leadership level if you're just you know, expressing sound bites, then that isn't really going to trickle down because you've got to end up with a culture where everyone is actually really, um, you know, em- empowered to to make inclusivity and, and a properly diverse and representative workforce part and parcel of the way that you operate. And a good example we t- touched on earlier was about looking at the sort of structural and, and, and sort of work flexibility and other areas around more progressive work-based um, you know, 
day-to-day uh, ways of ways of working and and the and the positive implications that can have if you can Im- implement that um, you do need to invest financially I think that's the thing uh, in the grassroots because you can't just artificially inseminate people in at more senior levels so you've got to look um, at, at a sort of uh, both a, a you know, a root and a branch approach, but very much at, at the grassroots of the business. Um, I would say that if you don't, if you're living within this bubble and working in this bubble, you know, why not become a mentor to someone from a different background? That's a nice, quick and sort of not easy, but a, a quick and direct way to actually um, start seeing the value of in, at an individual level, you know, come and talk to us about being a jolt mentor you know we 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 run our mentoring program you know that's a really really good way of learning and expanding your horizons and you could do that at whatever level within the business individuals are so i think that's a highly uh, effective way of actually uh, you know reassessing and reframing um throughout the business um you know and and ultimately do other things you get again get out of your bubble go and volunteer you know go and give a talk at a school in a deprived part of london or the country go and engage with people different to yourself because once you start appreciating these differences and the values then everything starts to change i think that's some some really 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 excellent advice um i've got a few bits to to maybe add on top of it and um please feel free to interject if you disagree with any of this because um so first is that diversity is very often oversimplified i think and that there are many ways to distinguish individuals it very rarely makes sense to draw conclusions based on surface level factors so try to be a little bit more open-minded about what constitutes diversity uh, second is that the more diverse a group the greater the level of acceptance generally is among that group Uh, discrimination tends to reside where there are either physical or artificial divides but drawn between people Uh, so try to be conscious if you might be creating unnecessary divides or uh, and continue to champion uh, things that are happening to kind of uh, take away that divide and and champion people's individuals Um, the next is that equality of opportunity and equality of outcome Uh, aren't always the same thing and that it's occasionally unrealistic to expect that because opportunity is equal the outcomes will therefore follow Uh, there are many factors that go into determining the outcomes so many of which aren't easily controllable but uh, we still want to try and maintain a system whereby we give everybody the the opportunities in order to try and see out the uh, what it is that they're trying to do and to kind of base it on merit as well as uh, background And number four is that whenever you take a a group position, regardless uh, of whether it's um, uh, just in in a positive way or in an adversarial way, uh, you're in many ways only propagating, I believe, negative outcomes in the way that you're kind of identifying groups, which is something that you're trying to ultimately stamp out. So instead, try and focus on an outcome or a shared mission. This is my football analogy that I'm harking back to. Um, Try and focus on a shared mission, which is we're all trying to make sure that the industry is more diverse, so focus on that. Um, Second to last one is diversity, as I've already said, can be measured in innumerable innumerable ways. But one surefire way, if you are a young creative and you're looking to get into the industry and be noticed, is to be really stand out with your work Uh, it still kind of falls back to that so draw attention to yourself regardless of your background Uh, 
because your work is so good and people in that circumstance will seek you out rather than you having to seek opportunities. Um, uh, sorry, two more. Uh, words are just words. You can choose to listen or you can choose to ignore it. But either way, when people speak negatively, um, they may have knocked your confidence, which isn't a nice thing, but I'd encourage you to base your self-worth on your opinion of yourself and what others feel about you or your, uh, rather than what people feel about you or your work. So continue to strive forward even if you feel like people are, are in your way. And then my final point is... Uh, it's very diff- difficult to change other people's minds, especially from a combative standpoint. So uh, even if you're, uh, especially if a person is individually invested in an ideology they hold, but one thing that you can control is your own perspective and being open-minded and open-minded, and also challenging your own assumptions. So uh, for anybody that's listening to this, please try and lead by example and in creating that change. Uh, not by being overly protective or adversarial, but by framing your points in a way that people listening to it can acknowledge it without being be, uh, feeling threatened. And hopefully uh, this will kind of help us lead towards the positive change we're looking to make. Um, so anybody that's still here at this point, Andy, how can uh, they get hold of you and... and <laughs> What's the best way for them to find out about the Jolt Absolutely. Initiative? I mean, I would simply say get in touch to get involved. So they can go to our website, which is www.joltacademy.co.uk. They can email me directly at andy at joltacademy.co.uk. Um, you know, if you've got questions, if you want to get involved and contribute with us, if you'd like us to come and talk to you about our yeah, internship scheme, our HR inclusivity training program that we offer to hiring managers and HR managers, if you'd like to talk to us about Jolt mentoring, any of those things or anything else, just email me and go along to our website and we'd love to hear from you. And even if it's not you directly, spread it word of mouth. We need like everybody in the industry to get behind this and uh, to find out about it, if nothing else. So, yeah, give it a go. And Andy, thanks for um, putting this initiative in the world. It's doing some real good stuff. Oh, it was a pleasure. It was really good to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe and share. I'd also like to invite you to an ongoing project called the Move Me Mailing List. If you enjoyed the show, I'm confident you'll enjoy this newsletter. It contains links to all the great content I've uncovered each month, along with insights of any interesting opportunities I've discovered. You can subscribe to this by visiting my website at rickyrichards.com. A special thanks to Frankie Byrne and James Utting. They're the tech heads that make this show possible. The intro music was composed by Dom Stores Fox. And thanks again to Reese Chapman for introing me to Lou and Lizette, the wonderful folks at Factory Studios in London, where this show is recorded. Finally, wherever you are in the world, I hope you have a great day and keep creating. Until next time, bye for now. <laughs>